You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class and what that really means is I'm not going to be giving basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to include basic instructions. So we've been talking about the Manual of Insight, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, uh, Manual of Meditation um, that has been recently translated by the Vipassana Metta Foundation, and it's just been published within the last couple of months. I thought it would be useful to go through it since it's one of the most comprehensive descriptions of Burmese-style <coughs> noting practice. So. Um, one of the things that's characteristic of the Burmese style is what's called um, karnaka samadhi or momentary concentration as the main vehicle for exploration. Um, we have been talking in the last weeks about the distinction between uh, the conventional uh, approach of developing access concentration and then jhana before beginning insight practice and how it differs from uh, karnaka samadhi or the momentary um, concentration that follows starting with insight practice. Um, it, it's at this point in the manual that all references to the other approach are going to be dropped because the, of the bias uh, of Mahasi toward Karnaka Samadhi or mo- momentary concentration. Um, so maybe we can touch briefly on, on the uh, other approach, which is to develop uh, access concentration. Access concentration could be described as having sufficient level of concentration that you can place your attention wherever you want to put it and keep it there without being pulled away by thinking uh, or some other sensory uh, distraction that pulls you away from that. It's a basic level of uh, concentration that's required to do practice. Jhana is then to enter into jhanic states or high levels of concentration which are characterized by five aspects for the first jhana which would be uh, vitaka which is the placing of the attention, vikara the sustaining of your placement of attention, piti which is an energy that arises in the body, Uh, um, sukha which is bliss so that you if you if the body becomes concentrated and PT arises, there's often a response to PT, uh, almost an emotional response to PT, which is blissful. And then with those four elements in place, you come into one-pointedness, which is called ekagata in Pali. The first jhana is unstable, and so you're constantly having to uh, place and sustain your attention. In order to go into the second jhana, you drop into a higher level of concentration and then you no longer have to place and sustain your attention. It settles into piti, sukha, and ekagata, or uh, rapture, bliss, and one-pointedness. 
in staying in the second jhana, what happens is the experience of the PT becomes too coarse, too energetic, and so it's abandoned. And in third jhana, you're just in bliss and in one-pointedness. Um, if you were to practice metta, then uh, as the object to take you into jhana, then metta jhana ends at the third jhana, because in metta there's always the inclination toward kindness. And uh, to move into the fourth jhana, you have to replace or be willing to relinquish the bliss and come into a place of equanimity. So in perfect equanimity, there's no inclination toward anything, so you couldn't be inclined toward kindness. So then you're moving into the exploration of the Vipassana jhanas. And from that place, you could leap into an inside exploration and be very well concentrated uh, to be able to explore uh, this, the uh, various set sense objects that you might choose to work with. <clears throat> and this was, up until the middle of the 20th century, the conventional wisdom in terms of how to practice meditation. And it wasn't really until... Um, Mahasi in particular, but some of the earlier Sayadaws uh, in Burma, where the momentary concentration approach came about. And the reason for this was largely due to the colonialization of Burma, or as it has been known for millennia, Myanmar. Um, the, Burm- the, uh, the joke is the British invaded, took over the place, and said, so what do you call this place? And, and the, somebody said, Myanmar. And the guy said, oh, yeah, Burma. <laughs> <laughs> so the, Bur- the, the, if you go to Burma um, or Myanmar, what you'll see is that, the, that it's a... Uh, culture based on Buddhist thought and so you you drive around Burma and they have Buddhist temples as common as we have churches here Uh, so everything is informed by it one of the things that struck me initially about it was that the question that all people asked um, was as you were leaving um, have I taken care of you well enough while we were together so different than what you might expect (laughs) here (laughs) <laughs> the British attempted to suppress the, the, the Buddhist culture and replace it with a Christian culture and, and the, the, the hierarchy of the, the Buddhist uh, community thought that what we need to do is really pass the practice into the general population as a way of preserving it because it's too easy to suppress the monastic culture and if we don't infuse the, the practice in the, in the general population, they could actually be able to eradicate the, the practice. So they, um, dis- they came to the conclusion in some fashion that the traditional path of developing high concentration states from long periods of meditation wasn't going to work if, as a practice of infusing into the general population and so they began this technique of insight first so that people could just begin insight practice without having to develop a sufficient level of concentration and then uh, begin to move in the direction of insight and liberation. This is a very distinct approach in the sense that 
the belief is that householders can have deep meditative experiences and householders can be liberated, which is in contrast to a lot of other uh, Buddhist approaches where only monastics can be liberated. And I think one of the things that drew me initially to this approach was that the monastic life doesn't really appeal to me and the idea that not um, becoming a monastic would then curtail the, the, the possibility of deep practice also was not that appealing to me. So when I initially looked for a teacher to, to learn from, I wanted a teacher that taught in, in the Burmese style and also uh, felt that liberation was a possibility and that they were teaching that. And so I, um, sat, I've been sitting with Shinzen Young, uh, my primary teacher for the last 18 years, who had that, that belief. His, in fact, he would say his expectation is that everyone here get stream entry in this lifetime, which was the thing that I wanted. So in practicing this uh, Karnaka Samadhi, this insight first practice, you just begin to undertake insight practice and in practicing intensely uh, develop enough concentration to be able to uh, uh, find the insights that uh, we're talking about here, which is into the nature of self versus no self, which is in the nature of impermanence, which is in the nature of the basic unsatisfactoriness of life in the human form. When I came to, te- to teach here at ATS eight years ago, because the, 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 the prevailing instruction here is not that, um, I found that many people did not have uh, the depth of concentration that would allow uh, uh, even a basic level of insight practice. Uh, Shinzen is a, a retreat teacher, so if you want to study with him, you have to go on retreat. And in retreat practice, if you do a week, say, of sitting or eight or, eight or ten hours a day, you develop sufficient concentration just doing the insight technique in order to uh, uh, have these kinds of insights that you're looking for. But uh, in, a, in people who just generally drop into a meditation center, often the practice isn't intense enough for, for that level of concentration to develop. And so we have this uh, 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 contrasting approach. Um, if you were to go into, say, a periodic retreat and develop the concentration that was needed, or you had a strong enough uh, householder's practice where you could develop sufficient concentration, then the insight first practice is a good way to go. But if you don't do that, how do you overcome the barrier of uh, developing momentary concentration that will actually lead to a succession of moments of concentration that will take you deep enough that you can have the insight uh, that we're hoping that you'll have by practicing? Um, So my, um, I guess, a compromise approach, since I've always been an insight first practitioner in my own practice was to offer a period of 10 minutes of uh, devoted concentration practice at the beginning of every Vipassana sit uh, that I do, for instance, in my morning meditation, so that people do develop it. And after two or three months of, of that kind of practicing, finding that most people then have sufficient level of concentration to be able to, to begin to have the basic insights that are 
I, I think that it, they really become the fuel for practice because as you have the basic insights that are suggested that come from meditation, it creates a curiosity and interest to have more insight, which then begins to fuel the practice. And that if you don't have those basic insights, then what tends to happen is a kind of frustration builds in the practice where you have a sense that actually they're not these uh, kinds of insights and then the resulting relief from suffering that would come from that are not actually available to you in the way that you're practicing. So reading the text, uh, mental purification for those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment. The polytexts examined above make it clear that those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment need not develop tranquility in place in advance in order to purify the mind. But they may begin with pure insight. One of the things that you'll notice about this text because of the, the, the time in which it was written is that there's a tremendous advocacy for the Karnaka Samadhi approach. In our culture at this time, it has completely swept. So the conversation, the, the argument that he made in this manual has been so successful that almost everybody thinks of a noting practice when they think of Vipassana meditation. Even if they don't know what they're saying and they don't do it, they still think of it as a noting practice. <laughs> the momentary concentration that arises when their insight practice grows strong enough then serves as mental purification. So when we talk about mental purification, what we're talking about is an absence of the hindrances. So no craving, no aversion, no unconsciousness, no restlessness and agitation, no sloth and torpor, no doubt. And in momentary concentration, we're not talking about the spaces between noting. We're talking about the noting process itself. You bring your attention to something, you know where your attention is, and you soak into the sensing experience of that. In that moment of soaking in, in that momentary concentration, the mind is free of hindrances, and then maybe they get you again. Whereas in the access of jhana practice, you completely come into a state of concentration deep enough so that the hindrances are absent, and that's what we mean by purification of mind. The principal emphasis of this book is to explain precisely this point, how those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment practice, that is, how to develop pure insight without a foundation of tranquility concentration. So there is no need to extensively explain mental purification here. However, it will be beneficial for those who take the vehicle of insight to enlightenment and develop insight based on momentary concentration to learn something regarding the following points, the Eightfold Liberation Path, the Eight Hindrances to Liberation, the Six Enemies of Concentration, the Ways of Evading Them, the Unification of Mind, <coughs> excuse me, or, or Seclusion from Mental Defilements. So, liberations and hindrances. The wholesomeness that arises from insight uh, is a cause of liberation for noble ones. Noble ones gain liberation from the cycle of suffering by developing it. Attachment or desire is a hindrance to liberation. Uh, when present, it hinders, it hinders a noble one's realization of the wholesomeness that arises from insight on the path of liberation. For this reason, attachment is called a hindrance to liberation. So. 
Attachment is a technical term in Vipassana meditation, which means in some sense that you attach to a particular stream of sensing experience and fixate it into something. Uh, an example of that would be you're listening to the vibration of my voice, but at the same time you're attaching to the pattern of vibration and fixating it into words that you're then associating a conditioned meaning to. So in some sense, liberation would be the, the capacity to hear the sound of my voice without fixating it or to be able to fixate it into a word perfect liberation. You could choose either uh, approach. In a conditioned world where the habit to fixate is so pronounced in us that we have no agency at all in it, you'll just hear a string of words and not be able to not hear the words. And that's where you're attached. That's the habit of attachment that we're talking about, the habit of fixating. Um, so, and I want to be clear about that so that you know actually what we mean by freedom, liberation from that. And this is true of all sensing experiences. We're so conditioned to fixate them and attach our conditioned meaning to them that we have very little choice about that. It just happens and then we're in this experience of an attached, fixated, solid experience and un and the, the flow of sensing is unavailable to us. Then because our conditioned response to attachment can be so strong, we don't even notice the distortion or the preference that we have in the way that we fixate and make the world. So that uh, we, we fixate uh, the sensing experience um, and it comes with all of the prejudices that we have, all of the conditioned meanings that we have, and we think that that's actually how it is because we, we're not free to watch it as it assembles and watch it disassemble whenever we want. So, um, can you hear the sound of my voice as a vibration or not? Can you see the room that you're sitting in as, as a flow of colored dots without actually making it into anything? That would be the freedom to do that, to come and go. Can you watch a sense of self arise and fall away without identifying with the experience of self? That would be another uh, pattern to be looking for. Insight and attachment. If one does not observe mental and physical phenomena every time they arise at the six sense doors, one cannot realize that there is nothing to them but body and mind, which are conditioned, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. As a result, one will develop an attachment to the objects that one fails to observe. If, on the other hand, one observes mental and physical phenomena, the, mo the moment they occur, one will realize that there is nothing to them but body and mind, which are conditioned, impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. As a result, one will be free from attachment to objects that one is able to observe. So if you're there at the moment of the arising, you can watch the whole process of the arising, of the fixation, of the attaching of conditions, meaning, and of the passing away and the dissolving of all of that. And then you can know in that experience the conditioned response 
which is different than just the pure sensing response to it. Is that making sense? Whether you can do it or not conceptually, is that, that making sense? So, <clears throat> attachment or sensual desire is called a hindrance because it obstructs insight practice. We must do uncountable things for the sake of ourselves, our spouses, children, relatives, friends, devotees, uh, supporters, teachers, and so on in order to achieve happiness and comfort in this life. These activities are all driven by the desire for happiness and comfort. We constantly seek what we have not yet gained while trying to maintain what we have already gained. Since we must make so much effort to satisfy our desires, we cannot find time for practice, and we may not even think of it. And even if we do think of, about practicing, we may never get around to it. At worst, we remain content to let the mind wander at will and enjoy ourselves saying or doing whatever we please. So then there's also the question of how are you using your time, energy, and resources and how much of it you focus on practice. Do you have a, have you had a sense of a, what uh, Shinzen calls the taste of liberation? Have you ever been relieved of your suffering by practicing? And is that enough motivation for you then to redirect and organize your time, energy, and resources in such a way that you can uh, have enough of them available to practice to actually uh, find uh, peace, find liberation, find freedom from suffering. Sensual desire often obstructs insight during practice as well. There are a number of ways this can occur. Sensual desire often takes the form of thinking about sense objects, which is a distraction. There may also occur a mild desire connected with the practice itself. We may come to enjoy the ease of practice or the unusual experiences that uh, one has uh, practicing. We may then feel proud of these experiences and reflect on them time and again. We may encourage close friends to take up the practice or we may long for better and smoother practice or for more and different unusual experiences. We may even long for path fruition and nirvana. Some scholars say the desire for path fruition and nirvana is not craving, um, but a wholesome wish, and that craving cannot take a super mundane state as an object. We should consider whether or not an ordinary person is able to take his or her object of genuine path of fruition in Nibbana. An ordinary person can take genuine Nibbana as an object of consciousness only at the moment when change of lineage consciousness matures. This occurs immediately before the arising of the path of stream entry, the first path knowledge. In the case of an ordinary person, no other mental state can take Nibbana as its object. Uh, moreover, it is impossible for an ordinary person to take the path and fruition as an object. Is that making sense? No. At what point do you stop being an ordinary person? When you've had stream entry. So what, what the Sedo is saying is that uh, um, the only craving that's con considered to be not unwholesome is the craving for enlightenment. 
but the craving for enlightenment also often turns into craving for interesting meditative states, which is not the same thing. And uh, could you actually be able to have a wholesome craving for liberation if, in fact, you had an unliberated mind and didn't know what it was that you were craving for? So that's an interesting thing. So I, I'm sort of convinced by that. If you don't know what enlightenment is, how can you crave for it in a wholesome way? And actually then, aren't you just craving for the thing that you think enlightenment is? And I can say that when I came to practice in the first intro to Vipassana class, when the teacher had uh, all of the students announce what they wanted, and I said I wanted to be liberated, that I, I was enjoined with a healthy round of unfriendly laughter <laughs> because the idea seemed ridiculous in that context um, that my idea of what liberation was had in the end nothing to do with it it was like so unrelated that it was almost a silly notion but what I wanted was not to have any more problems <laughs> that was what I thought liberation was that I would not have any more difficulty in life and this, um, of course, is completely unrelated to what you get out of practice. It isn't that you have no difficulty in life, it's the relationship that you're able to have to the difficulty. The terrible suffering that I had, that I wanted to be free of, was related to being attached to the experience of self, which I had no conception of really in terms of what I thought liberation might be. And actually, the freedom from that uh, is very early in practice and comes way before uh, actual liberation or actual nirvana. But the, the freedom from self is, is very early in the practice, so a long way from, from a path knowledge or fruition. So what I actually wanted was not nirvana. I wanted to be free from the suffering of self free from the trap of identifying so strongly with self, identifying so strongly with my early conditioning, which was crappy. I just wanted to get out of that endless round of uh, limits that were put on me before I was <coughs> old enough to have any agency in, in it. And that actually is, is, is not so hard to do. In, if, you, if you're willing to practice enough to get into a dissolution experience. Once you've had a dissolution experience, you see that the, the that solidness of self is completely intangible. And, and that if you can come easily and go from the experience of self, there's very little suffering. The, the, it's like the experience of self is a pressure cooker of Suffering, and if you can come and go from it, you can just take the top off the pan. And it doesn't pressurize, it just sort of flows. Um, so, in describing this though, uh, being present at the sense gate for the arising of the sensing experience then allows you to watch the process of attaching to it, it allows you to see how you make things out of it. So if you're watching the internal experience, you can watch how you fixate a sense of self out of 
internal visual image, internal talk, emotion in the body, and you can see how you fixate the world. So exterior sight, exterior sound, the feeling in the body that intersects with the world. In the Satipatthana Sutta, they talk about mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and outside. And what they mean is uh, an awareness of your own internal experience, an awareness of other people as an experience. And then to watch at the same time the interaction between your internal experience and the uh, experience of someone else, the empathetic experience of someone else. Because you also fixate your idea of of who someone else is. You fixate the idea of how they feel and how they respond to you. You create a sense of self for them that you operate with. They like me, they don't like me. They value me, they don't value me. They see me, they don't see me. And this is all something that we do. We're herd animals. We live in the community. We build these vast social networks. Los Angeles is this vast social network. The Japanese have a saying, uh, some people can live in a town of 250, 250 people and meet uh, the three people they need to know, and some people need to live in Tokyo. (laughs) 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 Have you met the three people you need to know, or five people, or how many people? So... We're going to do a see-hear-feel technique. I want to start with some some metta practice. Um, I like to teach an integrated metta vipassana, so we use the metta practice to develop concentration, but at the same time we use metta to begin to uh, adapt the model of ourselves that we have. Did you know that you think of yourself largely in terms of how well you've been able to get people to take care of you and you've made the decision early Um, I like to talk about attachment uh, theory and uh, human beings begin to exhibit attachment pretty early in life by 10 months old you can uh, study a a child's interactions with the world and see that they've they've made uh, decisions around themselves and the world and they operate in that conditioned response. So by the time you're 10 months old, you've made a decision about how competent you are. (laughs) And you've based it on crying out to the world. We always say children cry out to the world, but actually you know what they do first is they look really cute. (laughs) They look damn cute. That's the first thing they do to get their needs met. But if the, the caretaker isn't attentive and they miss the cute, then they look bewildered. And if they miss the bewildered, then they, they look alarmed. And if they miss the alarm, then they whimper. And if they miss the whimper, then they cry out intermittently. And if they miss the intermittent cry, then they cry continuously. And if they miss that, then they tantrum, which is what we mostly think of as the baby screaming out to the world for attention, but there's been 20 minutes of run-up to that that's been missed by the caregiver if that's happening. You cry out to the world, Help! (laughs) (laughs) 
I can't even roll over. <laughs> Somebody. <laughs> and then maybe somebody comes and they pick you up and they attune to you and they empathetically connect to you and they figure out what it is that you need and then they do their very best to give it to you. And if it's good enough, you develop a sense of self which is, I'm good at this. I can get my needs met. I'm competent. And it comes from that, and you've already made this decision by the time you're 10 months old, and if you don't do anything to change it, it sticks with you forever, for your whole life. Um, but if that isn't what happens for you, you can make up a different idea about yourself. I'm not competent, I'm not good at this. Nothing I do seems to be able to get anybody to come and take care of me. Or... I'm really brilliant, but the reason that nobody will come is because actually you're not up to it. You're not good enough to take care of me. Or I don't want to say anything. I don't want to call out because when I call out, people come and hurt me. These are the, the kinds of models that you, you develop in response to this. And so uh, one of the things that also can happen in, in insight practice is you can begin to see these models. That's you see the basis of them, the beginning of the sensing experience, and then you're able to watch how you form the sense of self out of these basic sensing experiences. And this is the way that you see into your conditioning and begin to unwind it to become free of it. Right? Uh, if, you, if you didn't have a good beginning, isn't it about time that you updated the software from your 10-month-old decision about how life was going to be? That's one of the things to consider. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about how really just a period of vibration, <clears throat> as opposed to attaching certain biases or prejudices to the words themselves, or your preconceived notions, or I hear your voice, I'm immediately going to assume that it's George and I get this opinion. It's like I found myself um, with all senses almost kind of like I call it squinting in a way. Mm-hmm see the forest you know, instead of the trees in a sense and, and, I, and sometimes it feels like I'm intentionally trying to go there but other times it just kind of happens right you know? and I'm wondering is that is that a product of me doing the practice or is that just I'm able to just not fixate on you know the visual fixate on, on what right. I think is I'm hearing and I think I bring to it um, I would say that it's a pretty ordinary thing to happen that you could find yourself there. Right. That what comes from practice is the, you, the, the ability to do it whenever you want. Okay. There's a serendipitous quality because these are all very ordinary natural states. Right. But then you develop the practice so that you have agency that you can do it when you want rather than being stuck. Is that? Um, the serendipitous part is fine and you'll, what you'll notice is a lot more of these things tend to happen when you're practicing without any agency at all. And then as they happen more often, you, you learn actually how to have agency in them. Um, Shinzen, who can come and go from cessation uh, from whenever he wants, when I asked him how he learned to do that, he said he recognized the pattern of sensing experience that he needed to focus on for that to happen. And that he then described tries to describe it to me and I can't see it to know what the object would be to focus on it. 
but uh, imagine that you could recognize the object that you needed to focus on that would carry you into cessation and that it was plain as day, then you could come and go when you wanted. But you would have to then have practiced enough that in all of the sensing experience that you're having, you would be able to pick that piece out. So. But in the beginning, you know, your, your, your clarity, your sensory clarity isn't going to be so great. Maybe you can't pick out even basic things. Um, and then as you practice, the resolution increases and increases and increases, and then you find that you can pick out more and more subtle experiences. Um, and then it seems ordinary, easy to do. Which is the, the same with any learning any skill in the beginning. It's all kind of clumsy, and then after a while you develop a, a dexterity, a capacity to do it. Is that making sense? But nothing that we're describing here is out of the ordinary. These are all perfectly ordinary conditions to be experiencing. And maybe one way to, to, to explain that is we have a bandwidth of 16 bits of consciousness, let's say. We have a bandwidth of consciousness which is very narrow, maybe 16 bits. You know what a bit is? The body-mind itself can process 11 million bits per second, but consciousness is only 16 bits. So almost everything is excluded from consciousness. So in some sense, the practice is merely inviting what's already happening and just unconscious into awareness so that we can actually experience it. How do you know um, what the experience of the formation of self is? Can you point at it? Can you pull it into auditory thinking, visual thinking, and emotion in the body, and see the interaction of those three together that then come into this sensing object that you can then identify with and believe in, which then fixates this belief in this is who I am. And in that moment of belief, obscuring all of the other cells that have ever arisen as if this were the one solid, ongoing, continuous experience of self, even though ten minutes from now with two other people you could have a whole different experience of self and lose the distinction that they're not the same, that they weren't continuous, that they weren't ongoing. I always feel like I'm digging a hole when I go into this kind of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Good. Yeah. That's a pretty rapid pace of change. Uh -huh. Sensory experience, and sensory experience. A lot, a lot of on top of each other. Good. I would just be going off, 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 
And then that would like lull me into a state of no longer paying attention. Oh. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I would go back to just like maybe some big sound, but you know what I mean. Like eventually, it would just always if I was concentrated, then that would always be all of them. Is that is that is that anything like that? Um, well, it's a big object, all, so you'd have to be pretty concentrated in order to hold the whole experience of it. But then, in holding it, it may drain the capacity for concentration because the bigger the space, the more energy it takes to hold that. And then you get a little bit spacey and then maybe come back to just noting the individual ones to re-intensify uh, the concentration would be a good way to go. It's just what happens. And then you're present for it. right out of that internal Ooh, experience. Yeah. Those are rapid shift in direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, noted. <laughs> Not a complaint, In some sense, the repetition of the phrase depends on your level of concentration. If your mind is kind of scattered, then it's better to repeat it quickly and fill all of the space so that you're less likely to get pulled away. But it, and if you're highly concentrated, it hardly even matters whether you repeat the phrase. Um, the phrase uh, doesn't matter because it's not the object of meditation. It's the mind state that's the object of meditation. So as much of your energy that can be on that is where it should be. If the, the phrase is, um, I find phrasing sometimes to be distracting enough where would you recommend just trying to embody the, the 
Um, it's distracting to have to repeat the phrase. So not necessarily dramatic. Is it the content of the phrase? Yeah, yeah. I would use I would use a simplifying of the phrase rather than doing that. Maybe just peaceful, 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 peaceful. Um, with wet metta, you're you're in, you're paying attention to the content of the phrase because it's in some sense generating the the feeling response that you want. In in dry metta, you're really just wanting to keep reminding the mind of the practice you're doing. Um, but since it's it's ancillary, it doesn't matter what the phrase is. So thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, I've left a sign-up sheet up there at the desk. If you want to add your name and email to it, I will send you an invitation to the Dropbox where the recordings from the classes go. Sometimes the content of the classes dense and you may want to review it later. Or if you miss a class, um, since I'm just going to be pushing through the text and you want to be able to keep up with it, you could catch it on the on the the Dropbox recording. In order to get access to the Dropbox, I need your name and email. So there's a list over there to do that in. Um, we have one more retreat this year at ATS, which is the Winter Retreat, which is the Meaningful Life Retreat, which I teach up at La Casa de Maria in Montecito near Santa Barbara. It um, starts on December 26th and goes to, to January 8th or January 7th, something like that, 6th. It's an 11-night retreat. The first five, night, first five days of the retreat will be all metta, and then we'll move into vipassana. So, um, what I find is that if you if you go deeply into metta practice, it really concentrates you and also creates a, a good container for going into vipassana, so that a lot of the the difficulties that you may be familiar with on a vipassana retreat don't tend to happen as intensely on the metta vipassana version of it. You can come for the first six nights or the second five nights. Um, it's a beautiful place to retreat, and it's a small retreat, so limited to 30 spaces. And I'm not sure how many are left, but if it's something that you're considering, I would sign up for it sooner than later. Um, there's going to be a women's-only retreat in January at uh, Joshua Tree with uh, Joanna Harper and Mary Sandcabbage. There are some flyers up there for some classes that are, are coming. Um, take a look and see what looks good. I do like to advocate retreat practice for people, and the, I, I like the longer retreats. If you think of a short retreat, uh, you, you arrive, it takes you a couple of days to settle in, and by the third or fourth day, you're really getting into the swing of things, and then it's over on a <laughs> week-long retreat. So with the longer retreats, it's actually two or three or three, maybe four more sitting days, but it's also uh, almost twice as long in terms of actually being able to practice in a settled in way. So it's useful to go on longer retreats. Um, I'm also a big advocate of having meditation centers to come to. It's pretty ordinary to get into some kind of agitation or difficulty in your uh, insight practice and 
it's useful to have people that you know that practice that you can talk out or feel supported by in terms of practice um, and what better place to come and meet them than at a meditation center uh, in order to have a meditation center, then we need to rely on your practice of generosity to keep the lights on. I know we've been here for a long time and you may think that we're solid, but I can assure you that the finances <laughs> of retreat centers is always precarious. And without your uh, practice of generosity, each time you come, we may not be able to stay open. We have this center and the one in Santa Monica and the, the lease came up this year and they raised it $1,500 a month at the Santa Monica Center. So we need to actually increase the amount of money that we bring in. We take cash and credit cards. Um, uh, and um, if you would also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the, the cushions away, that's also appreciated. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.